Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. I am here with my co-host, Kayla Solomon. Good morning, Kayla. How are you? Good morning, Laurie. I'm good. Today, we don't have Dominique, but we do have a special guest. So I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Our guest today is Jacqueline Brown. Jacqueline Brown is a coach, organizer, advocate, harm reductionist, and podcaster. She is an impacted family member, and she has lost her younger brother. Her younger brother's name is Mark, and she lost him to a heroin overdose on November 16th, 2018. Since then, she has channeled her grief into speaking out about addiction and mental health. Jacqueline is a coach and consultant for Stay Golden Coaching and Consulting. She is the chair of the Family Caucus and field organizer for the Recovery Advocacy Project and Partnership to End Addiction. She is very passionate about harm reduction, and she is the volunteer coordinator for Shot in the Dark, a Phoenix, Arizona syringe service program. Additionally, Jacqueline is host of Dark and Enlightened, a podcast with open and honest conversations about dark and stigmatized topics. Welcome, Jacqueline. Hi, how are you both? Good. So good to have you. Yeah, Thank we're you. really, really excited to have you here today, Jacqueline, because we're here because we are the family members that are impacted by a loved one that has substance use disorder. But the one voice we don't hear very frequently from is the voice of the sibling. So I am really glad that you were able to come and be that voice today for so many. So I was hoping that maybe you could just start off by sharing your story with our listeners so they know who you are and what brought you here. Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you both for asking me to be on here. It's nice as a sibling to be highlighted and asked to do that. So I appreciate that. So to tell a little bit of my story, I am the oldest of three and uh, Mark is the middle child and Allison's my youngest uh, sister. And I feel like this is just a common story. We all grew up in a very normal home. There wasn't anything crazy or out of the ordinary, just middle class, nothing wild or anything like that. I will say, though, that for my brother, Mark, um, when he was in high school, he actually, I believe it was within the span of a month, he lost four of his friends um, in a variety of different ways, uh, not drug related, not overdose related. So even in high school, I think we talk about this a lot, is that trauma is usually the root of a lot of people's substance use. So 
definitely that's where I can, in my head, reflecting back, see a point where trauma first started to show up. But in 2010, he was involved in a car accident where he was hit by a drunk driver and he was ejected from his vehicle. He was in a wheelchair for about two months after that. And they gave him, of course, all the oxycodone he could want. Something that I actually found out recently is that my brother had been kind of experimenting with uh, opioids or just different drugs before that. It wasn't anything that was full blown, but this uh, accident like really kind of pushed it over the edge. And as time went on, I didn't know about his substance use until a friend of his called me, which I'm really grateful that his friend did reach out. But in the same sense, it really paralyzed me. Like, I'm not going to lie about that. When I was told that I think he has a problem, this is getting really bad. I didn't know what to do at the time. Nobody, you know, this is what 2011, 2012. So it wasn't necessarily a big topic that people talked about. And additionally, I didn't want anyone to view my brother or view our family in a bad light. So I, you know, we talk about fight, flight. I totally froze because I didn't know how to approach it. I didn't know um, if he would be offended. So there would just be times that I was just text him and check and go, hey, how's it going? And he'd be like, oh, I'm doing good. You know, just responding like normal. So then I thought maybe it's not that bad because he's responding to me. It eventually got to a point though, where it did start to get bad. And my sister and I were actually the ones to bring it up to him. And I will say as the big sister, I don't know if this is the dynamic in every family, but you're also kind of parent number three. So I was carrying a lot of this. I had not told my parents yet. And for me to kind of like hold this secret was a lot. And when I did tell my parents, because they also kind of started to notice things, I'm like, well, let let me talk to him first and, you know, see what we can do from there. And uh, I remember going into his room, all the shades were drawn. He was sitting on his floor and me and my sister sat on the floor with him. And I said, you know, we know that you've been using drugs. And he just flat out said, I don't want to be like this, like, I don't want to be addicted. I'm really trying hard to stop. I think I've got a hold on this and just give me some time. And at that point, who am I to say anything else? I don't know anything about drug use. I don't know anything about relapse recover. I don't know anything about this. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to take you for your word because I don't have anything else to, to go from there. But as time went on, as we all know, it continued to get worse and the worst thing that we probably, which was my idea, because watching on the media, you watch intervention and you think, oh, yeah, this looks really easy. Like, obviously, <laughs> obviously someone, if confronted with you need to leave or go to treatment, they will obviously pick treatment. That was the dumbest idea ever, because I told my parents, I said, you know, let's give him an ultimatum. And that ended up being probably one of the worst conversations I've ever had in my life, because as you may have experienced, both of you, when you confront someone with their substance use, it was just deflecting blame. Well, you did this and remember you did this and it turned into 
this version of him I'd never seen in my life. And me and my brother were extremely close. We had never, the things we would fight about were, what are we going to watch on TV? Or it's my turn to play on the Nintendo 64. We never fought over anything big. So to have this happen, I literally called out of work for days because I was so overwhelmed and broken over what happened. He chose to leave to go live with friends. He's like, you guys don't understand me. Rehab's not going to work for me. You don't know anything. And again, back then, the only options were, if you were to Google, detox, rehab, detox, rehab. So I'm thinking all right, you know what? I need to step back for a bit because like this is destroying me. And as time went on, he ended up getting to a place of recovery on his own. And I remember we met up for dinner and he's like, I'm in a really great spot. I haven't used and I want to say it was maybe a month or two. I thought, this is fantastic. We're all done, you know? And uh, and I see everyone's face like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. When you're in a situation like that and you haven't experienced that around you in your life, like there's nothing else I have to go off of. Right. You, you don't know. You don't know. You have no idea. So you believe it. Yeah. And, you know, as we all know now, it's just this constant cycle. It did eventually get to a point, though, where I went home for Thanksgiving one year and we had not been talking for a couple months prior, probably because... I needed to space or he wasn't replying because obviously along with the um, substance use came mental health stuff. So he officially got diagnosed with PTSD, depression, anxiety. So you got to think on top of it, he's being prescribed Xanax and any sort of benzo. I mean, I don't think that's talked about enough how hard that can be just to get off of if you are on it. So bottom line, he ended up this is probably like the worst story. We went to a bar and it's, you know, a small bar the night before Thanksgiving, everyone's back in town. And I felt that was the perfect time to bring up, Hey, you should go to rehab. Cause you know, why not? And we got into this giant argument in the middle of the bar. And I feel awful for my husband because he was like the third wheel, but then it eventually got to a point where he's like, you don't, you're not listening to me. Like rehab is not going to work for me. That's not what I want to do. Like being trapped somewhere is not what I want. And then I just finally yelled, like, I don't want you to die. And he started finally, like at the end of this, he's like, okay, I will go. Um, and I'm thinking again, I finally completed my mission because through this whole time too, my parents felt very awkward talking to him about it because they also didn't want to set him off. Because as you know, the mood swings that can occur with substance use, they didn't want to trigger him. They they didn't want to do anything. So really I was the only one who was being very blunt and honest with him about stuff. And he was covered under state insurance because at the time he was, I think it's older than 26, you get off your parents' insurance. So at day 12, they were like, we're not going to pay anymore. And if you want to continue, it's going to be some exorbitant amount, like $2,000 a day or, you know, whatever ridiculous amount it was. And I remember thinking, I'm going to max out my credit cards. I'm going to get a loan. Me and my parents will all split this up. 
and he, and when he was in rehab, he was allowed like visitation for an hour every night. And so like, I would go and talk to him and I could see the changes that he was going through and a lot of realizations that were really important for him. So I thought we can't pull him out now, but him being him, he's like, I'm not going to let anyone pay for my mistakes. I'm not going to let anyone pay for this. I'm just going to go back home. And I'm thinking, no, that is the last place you need to go. So my husband, again, a very kind man, I said, hey, can he live with us for a bit? Um, And mind you, my sister had just moved out of our house because she had recently moved to Phoenix and was waiting on an apartment. And my husband was like, absolutely, of course. And during that time frame, when he lived with us, it was about two months, it was like having my brother back. Was he still using substances? Yeah, alcohol, um, he was using cannabis, but those weren't like his drugs of choice. And without realizing it at the time, like, I guess I just took a harm reduction approach because I was like, as long as you are not using heroin, I don't care. Like you are in a good spot. You're happy. You're lucid. You know, that that's what matters. And it was like us being kids again. I mean, we would stay up and watch YouTube and watch ghost videos and all sorts of stuff. But part of my time with him was every day checking in with him and saying, hey, how are you feeling today? You know, are you feeling triggered? Are you feeling off? You know, just always making sure to have that check in with him. But as time went on, he was still taking Xanax. And there was a point where I was like, well, let me control the amount of Xanax you take. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And and that's that wasn't a good thing to hear for him. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to go home for the weekend. It was his dog's birthday and his dog was still at my parents' house. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll see you on, on Sunday. And he never came back. And um, he went back into substance use in and out. And uh, eventually he, he went back to school. And I think it's a lot of that was because my dad kept pushing him and kept saying, you know, When he got into his accident, he was in his junior year of college. So my dad kept saying, you just have another year to go. Like, let's just finish this out. He went back to school. And um, I, the last time I talked to him was Father's Day of 2018. That was the last time I saw him in person. And I remember the last thing I said was, I love you. Take care of yourself. You know, we hugged. And, and then in November, I got that call from my mom and this is maybe something people don't realize is every time still, if I see my mom or dad pop up on the phone, that's like a PTSD, like trigger moment for me, because every time I thought this is the call. And so as soon as I picked it up and I heard this, like guttural scream, I knew, you know, And the reason we had not talked is not necessarily because we were mad at each other, but as you know, with someone with depression, there are times that they're going to withdraw and he was just going through a lot. And so, and up until this point, only people in our family who are close to us, like knew what was going on. So when he passed away, I remember getting online because after he passed away, couldn't sleep and seeing people's speculation. Now, this is where I, (laughs) 
the, ma- the magic of social media. So a, lo- a lot of people were speculating and they said, well, what happened? Is this another overdose? You know, just very nonchalant about it. And I, re- I remember reading these things of people speculating and, and posting and people sharing their little theories of what happened. And it was a really difficult conversation the next morning to tell to my parents who I'm like, this is going to sound weird, but people are speculating on the internet. And I think we as a family should just say that, yes, confirm that he did pass away because we didn't say anything online. There were friends of his in other states, like what's going on. So I just create a statement said he suddenly passed away. Didn't mention that he overdosed anything like that. But then uh, something that lit me on fire, and this is always the defining moment for me, is that I saw a post of him. It was a picture, is I believe it was a senior picture, and it said, hashtag, and another one bites the dust. And I remember thinking, who the hell are you to like reduce my brother to this hashtag and for everyone to just be like, Oh, just another overdose. I've never done advocacy up until that point. I had not spoken out. I had not done anything. So I told my parents, it was already decided that my sister and I were each going to give a eulogy. And I said, I'm going to talk about Mark's addiction in the eulogy. And they were like, maybe you shouldn't. And I said, why? Like the worst has happened. I'm going to talk about this. If Mark were here, he would want me to keep it real. He would not want me to lie about who he was. He was the most authentic, genuine person. And the last thing he'd want me to do is to create some fluff piece about how he lived his life because he had told me numerous times, I don't think I'm going to live to be old. Like he, when I say he enjoyed life, he enjoyed life. He did risky shit and you know, as a big sister, I'm like, maybe you shouldn't do that. Uh, But my eulogy was, I say, my first piece of advocacy. And there was like probably 150 people there. And I just told the story of his life, told how his addiction affected his life, how it affected our lives. And I reminded people that he was more than his addiction. You know, he was a person with dreams and hopes and he was my brother. He was someone's son, someone's grandson. And I remember after that feeling like there was this weight that was just lifted off me. And there were people that came up and said, I don't know if this is inappropriate to say, but that was a really good eulogy. (laughs) And I remember thinking, it was, wasn't it? Like, I, you know, it's, I wrote this on the most sleep deprived, emotional, like the worst point of my life. I wrote this and it was perfect in my, like to this day, I say that's my best piece of advocacy, but still, if you didn't go to the funeral, like this is one of those weird things. If you didn't go, I didn't share it online. And I, I waited a few months because I just needed time to kind of process what had just happened you know it happened right before thanksgiving right before christmas like the worst and to this day i hate that time of year and once time went on and on my birthday i actually posted my eulogy and i said look i've been very quiet about this this is the best way for me to explain what happened to my brother and from there i started to become open and Uh, wrote blog posts, op-eds, 
And once it hit the one year mark, I, I did some work with Shatterproof and they asked me to speak at their Los Angeles 5K event. We're originally from LA. We're from Santa Monica. This event was a week before the one year anniversary of his death. In my head, in the movie story head, this is going to be such a beautiful thing. I'm going back to our hometown. It's right before his anniversary. This is going to be so healing. I give this speech. It's great. Afterwards, I feel terrible because up until this point, I had been running on fumes, trying to just have everyone remember my brother because for so long, you know, like after the funeral happens, let's be honest here, people move on, you know, while the family is left, like my world was at a standstill for years, you know, and uh, I had to go into hibernation for a bit because it destroyed me. And it messed with my health. I ended up getting an autoimmune disease. I ended up in the hospital. And I was like, the universe is really like, you need to stop and process your stuff. So um, slow down. Exactly. Exactly. Because I thought I was processing it because I went to grief counseling every week. I was reading all the books, reading all the articles. I'm a very analytical person. So I'm like, how do I get through this as fast as possible? Yeah, I need an algorithm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell me what books I need to read. Will this be gone by next January? I was just like laser focused on this is something we get through. That's not what it is. And over time, as I learned the hard way, the grief is always going to be there. You're always going to grieve and you're always going to have this sense of sadness. And I always describe it as waves. Some days it's going to be like a hurricane and some days it's just like low tide and you're good and you and you can focus. But the big piece for me is like, you know, as time has gone on, so much of me and and I don't know if this is. I feel like I see this a lot in the advocacy world too, with like parents is that so much of who we become, we tell our person's story and that's all we do. You know, we kind of lose our sense of self and what we're about. So if anyone were to ask me, well, what do you do? Like notice you asked me, tell me your story. The whole, this whole part has been about my brother. This hasn't been about me. Right. <laughs> so, but then as someone with anxiety, who's overly analytical, I'm like, no, you need to know all the background story before I tell you my story. But it, it got to a point where my grief evolved and it I was no longer having thoughts of, oh, I miss my brother. I miss this. It was. I'm worthless. Why am I on this planet? Why am I even living? I would drive recklessly on the way to work. I would hit 80, 90. I'm like, I hope someone switches into my lane and just I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And it finally got to a point where I'm like, I don't think this is normal. And I went to a doctor and got diagnosed and, you know, just like my brother, PTSD, depression and anxiety. I'm like, wow, we're twins. Like how, how weird is this? But that was a very big wake up call to me because I realized, wow, this is something I can actually control. Like the grief wreaked havoc on my life you could be at a grocery store and then a song comes on I'm like no and I'm like rushing out of the grocery store but when I think of depression here's where the analytical side comes in I'm like I can actually take medication 
I was very anti-medication because I thought I don't want to be fake happy. I don't, I don't want to um, be some medicated version of myself. I was wrong. I've never heard that term, but I, I like that term. Like, I don't want to be medication happy, which I'd really like to know a little bit more about that because I too have been on antidepressants because I also got diagnosed with PTSD, but I didn't feel that the antidepressants made me fake happy. In fact, I don't feel it made me happy at all. Oh, really? Yeah. It made me not feel in some ways. Really? But please continue sharing and what your thoughts are. Yeah. Yeah. So in my experience, and I'm, again, I'm a very much an open book. So if this is like off-putting for people, I'm sorry, but I started with originally holistic stuff type stuff. I went to a a homeopathic doctor because I'm like, there's got to be a way to naturally do this before I get on a pill. Yeah, that didn't work. I did that for uh, a long time and it just didn't work. I'm not, I'm not bashing that. There were some things that I felt like maybe it was just changing my mindset and that's what it worked. I don't know. But eventually I went to Zoloft or Searcher Lane as the generic. And I remember I started out at 50 milligrams, which I think is like the lowest dose you can start at. And if you've been on antidepressants, it takes about three to four weeks for it to like fully kick in. Me being analytical person, every day I wrote down my side effects. Are they getting worse? Are they getting better? And had my own little journal. And I went up to 100. That was way too much. And then I went back to 75 and I've been there for a while. And I will say for me, and I know that sometimes it's a roulette of depression medication because like you said, you know, it could just make you numb. And that was one thing I was really afraid of. And the way that my doctor described it to me is like, your highs won't be as high, but your lows won't be as low. So you're kind of, instead of like this jagged graph of emotions, you're going to be kind of a wave. And I was like, I can deal with being a wave. And for me, and I, and I know it's going to be different because even going into the science of it, uh, there's SSRIs, SNRIs, which, which neurotransmitter am I lacking? You know, like it's this whole guessing game, but I've been very lucky that it's been helpful for me because the first time I noticed it was we were walking at the park and I thought, this is a really beautiful day. And I didn't feel guilty about having a beautiful day. And I didn't feel guilty because usually it comes with, but your brother's dead and he's not here to enjoy it. And I know that's really dark, but all of my thoughts were. It's the truth. But Mark's dead. I just want to jump in for a second for the clinical piece, which is that what I feel like is that there's all this work that people do psychologically, homeopathically, whatever. And As a clinician, I will tell you that one of the things that I look for is if you're doing all of this work and there's no relief and you're still like you're still falling and falling or you feel like you're in the well and you're not getting up. The way I describe taking medication is that you're putting the ground underneath your feet. Mm, I love that. You can't climb out if there's no ground. And so what the medication does is it creates the ground for you to stand on to do the work. The work does not stop with the medication. Yes. The work starts with the medication. 
And so if you can't work on yourself because you keep, you can't get any kind of uh, purchase or foothold, you take the medication and then you continue to do the work or do it in a different way. Exactly. And that's such a great way to put it because I would always joke around like, I'm just in a crypt. I'm just in this hole. I'm never getting out of here. It's fine, whatever. But like you said, it provided like this stability for me to where here I am practicing all the things I should. I'm going to therapy. My grief counseling has now evolved into therapy. I'm doing all of these things and I'm being very healthy and I'm being open. Why isn't this working? And the medication for me was the missing piece. And and I understand medication is not going to work for everyone, but for me, it has helped me tremendously in the sense of being able to get to these next steps of healing, so to speak. One thing I will say is that a lot of people, when they see you in a good spot, now this is the other side of it. When they see that you're doing better, then they kind of make the assumption like accepted his death. No, I have not accepted his death. Or they think like there's a finality, like it's so beautiful how you've been able to kind of have this closure No, I don't have closure either. I I think that's a big misconception because if I'm smiling and this is the juxtaposition, if you're doing really bad, which I was very obvious, I'm not doing well, people kind of backed away because it's uncomfortable. But when I'm doing really well, everyone's like, it's so great to see you happy again. I'm so glad you have closure. No, 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 no. Like it's my antidepressant. Let's be honest here. And I'm doing the work, but it's a lot of work to not be depressed. So Jacqueline, this is the parallel process. Okay. Cause I'm, and the person is using, because that's the same thing. Oh, you're in recovery. Oh, look at you. You're doing great. And you're, you're at this stage in your recovery and you're taking meds and you're in therapy and you've gone to rehab end of story. That's why we all laugh when you're like, okay, he goes to rehab and it's done. (laughs) It's like, there's no done. And I feel like what you're saying, which is really, really important is that all of this is a process and Mm -hmm. there's no ending. There's no closure. There's no there, there. It's -hmm. just this, what happens is it goes in waves. And to me, what progress means is that you're increasing your function, your functional level. So that when things are difficult, you have more ground to stand on. I love that. Please join us next week for the rest of our interview with Jacqueline Brown. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.